sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, boss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. The rumor, the innuendo, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll. And sometimes we have a retrospective because someone leaves us and goes to rock and roll heaven. And everyone spends a lot of time remembering the artists. They probably should have spent a lot more time when they were here. But it does give us a great opportunity to to talk about Oh, someone. man. We said goodbye to Loretta Lynn last week, man. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the all-timers. Uh, tell me about your relationship to Loretta. As a Tennessee guy, I just figure you got a deep one. Well, the, th- well, the thing is, is like I should be into... <laughs> Can I make this analogy now? <laughs> so yeah. I'm from Tennessee. I have on a Tennessee t-shirt. You know, uh, Dolly's from Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and, you know... Uh, Loretta isn't from Tennessee. Um, no, no, no. But, she's from Kentucky. She's right. from Kentucky. But I, right. like you know, Nashville. I'm, she's deep in the country oh, music scene. That's oh, all I meant by that. Uh, oh, but I'm going to get you. I'm going to take you to the promised okay. land. Okay. With us. Okay. So Dolly had a song called Jolene. Please don't take my man. Yeah. And Loretta had a song that said, "You better stay away my from my man. I'm ca- dragging you by the hair to Fist City." Oh my God, dude! Like, Fist City is is that the greatest song? Is that the greatest Loretta song? She she grabs her by the freaking hair cat fight in the song. And it's like and it's it's the same rhythm as all of those songs. It, you know, they're they're oh, yeah, all yeah, kind yeah. of yeah. they're very similar in terms of how the the tempo and the you, you know you're. The key is kind of the same, and, and a lot of it, you know, they I guess they just churn those out or or whatever. But but that wasn't my introduction to her. My introduction was all the Conway Twitty duets oh, based course. on oh my based God. on where how old I was and when I was watching Ralph Emery on CMT or whatever. Can we listen to the craziest Conway duet? The one where he doesn't do anything and she does all the heavy lifting. The one where he's on the phone. Yeah. It oh, is yeah, the yeah. most. It is the most craziest. <laughs> Thing I want to thank Elliot Kindle, if God knows Elliot Kindle ever listened to our podcast, who gave us both the CD. It was like the definitive, the definitive Loretta Lynn collection. Yeah. I don't really know how to say this, but I want to tell you that he's on the phone the entire song. Like you think at some point he's gonna like join her? Nope. She sings the whole song, and he just basically like, like basically he's being a crank caller. Like there's a lot of heavy breathing. It's a little sexual. It's a little uncomfortable, Conway. I need something. I'm trying to tell you that I So it's all that cheesy. You know, it's like it's kinda like that, you know. There's not like a big reveal at the end where like, hey, hey, Krusty the Clown comes at like, you know, it's No, no, there's nothing. He just it just continues. He talks on the phone just, for a solid two forty. I mean, do you want to talk about the the influential impact of her in terms of the songs that she released that were hits that other women didn't release or other men didn't release well we're, we're gonna get there i mean there is a lot to talk about with loretta obviously one of the biggest names of all time one of the longest careers in music history here's the thing i mean talk about influence not only was she influential she had a almost seven decade career and i know and, and here's the thing not very many people have accomplished that. And not very many people who have been around and putting out some output have done it as gracefully or as well as she has and had sort of second and third acts of their careers. Here's a few that are on the clock still. I I did a little research because I was like, who else has done this? Like, who even has gotten close? Yeah. Stones. Well, no. The Stones actually aren't there yet. Tony Bennett, is he's at seven decades. Uh, Stevie Wonder, because he started at age 11, is already yeah. uh, in the six-decade realm. Bob Dylan, Paul and Ringo, Neil Diamond. Uh, the Stones and Elton are close, but they're a bit shy of six full decades. Really, only two other women besides Loretta have clocked in at this level. Do you, do you have any idea? I would not have been able to guess these. 70? Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Barbara Streisand and uh-huh. Tina Turner. Oh, Tina. I'm such a moron. I saw Tina maybe when she was 70. Like, I saw her on the way out. She was in an arena. She's not gone yet. She's still here. Oh, oh yeah. No, dude. She is gone. She went to get, she went to the passport place. She goes, take my U.S. passport. (laughs) She's a, she lives in Switzerland. She got married. She met a dude really late in life. I want to do that. Is a adorable, amazing. 
romantic story on what happened to her. If we miss somebody, we are the story guys at gmail.com. Hook us up. Tell us tell oh, us who we missed. Since this seven decade career, chronologically, we're we're gonna have to wait to talk about the Jack White thing. Yeah. Oh, think, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. It's it's sort of like Rick Rubin. Right. Like very different. Totally. And, well, and that's what yeah. I mean by that second or third act, right? Like not a lot of people get to have that. Even Tina and Barbara have, they've done fine, but they haven't gotten to do sort of a reinvention. And there's a really interesting thing I'm going to let you in on that you may or may not know about her songwriting that she gets to revive with Jack. So I mentioned that Stevie started music young, but Loretta started everything young. Obviously, she's born and grows up in Kentucky. That becomes part of the lore. She's married in the mid-1940s at the age of 15. She lied about this for a long time, said it was like 13. It was actually 15. Wow. Um, married a 21-year-old named Oliver, uh, but much more recognized over the next 50 years by the name Doolittle. She calls him Do. Hey, here, let's let's talk about this. Have you read Coal Miner's Daughter? No, I watched the movie. Okay. So I guess when I was a kid. Sure, 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 sure. I mean, it's crazy that we're talking about someone who recently died, but the, the their first memoir is older than I am. <laughs> that's how long yeah. her career was oh yeah <laughs> that memoir came out in 76 the movie came out in 80 and of course it makes a career for sissy spacek tommy lee jones plays Doolittle. i've neglected getting to loretta loretta's been on this list of of female country artists who i have been researching in spare time because there's like this connective tissue between patsy klein and loretta lynn and a few other women who sort of flare up and then flare out in country music so eventually we're going to get to this right uh an episode that is is about all of this lore around these women in country music but i hadn't gotten there yet but i've done a lot of research and so loretta is uh the coal miner's daughter thing is just so interesting because you there's like now if you read it now it came out in 76 so you literally have like almost 50 years of post knowledge about her life but you're listening yeah. or reading her in the first person talking about the first 40 years of her life that really drives home how old she is to me right like how how there's, long of a career here, okay she had. If, you, if that doesn't do it there's a second memoir still woman enough that comes out in oh two so that one's 20 years old <laughs> Yeah, and she know. I mean, the you know whoever the publisher, whoever is like, yeah, you you got to make that title like boss. <laughs> you know, it's like who else? Who else is in that industry as specifically as a woman doing what she's doing, right? Or right. anyone with that long of a career? Right. I guess George Jones had a you know he had a super long career, but you know he. He didn't make it. <laughs> no. It's surprising he made it to like no. 40. I mean, uh, you realize Loretta Lynn put out an album last year. Yes. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. She she went off the road in 18 because basically I think her family told her, no, you're not allowed anymore. She's had a few health things as you know you do when you're in your late 80s. Um, obviously, there's so much to talk about with Loretta. You already said this, right? You were like, are we going to just be talking for four hours about trying to capture all this career? Are we going to hone in on one thing? Obviously, we're going to be picking up pieces along the way, but there is one specific story I want to hone in on today for a few reasons. Number one, I think it bodies a lot of core Loretta into one tale. The good, the messy, the well-meaning, a lot of that stuff that made her so singular. Number two, it's not a story that has stuck to her, which is really interesting, and we'll talk about this. She tells her side of it in Coal Miner's Daughter, but when I went looking for other versions of this and more details, there is almost nothing out there. One of the old, When we get to the core story, it's really from her perspective inside Coal Miner's Daughter, and it doesn't exist on the internet. If you, if you look up, you can hear about this event, and that exists, and that was in a lot of aerobics, and we'll talk about that, but the controversy behind this event has been wiped it's been totally wiped, which is just a, a interesting thing because that like doesn't happen to celebrities anymore. Controversy does not get wiped. You can't. May, but maybe um, maybe she you know didn't want people to know that she knew people that could take care of that stuff. Yeah, right. I mean, and well, and part of the reason I'm you know it's it's odd, right? It's like okay, there's a controversy, and this is how you're going to honor her. Well, I think this story reflects a lot about her, and she told it, so we're going to hear it in her voice, and that's why that's why I think it's it's honoring, but. This story happens in 70 and 71, all right? So you asked where we were going to go in this career. So we're going to go all the way back to to 70. And we need to do a quick history to get us to this point in her career. To like 40 years old Loretta. Right, 40 years old Loretta. Where she is, who who is she when the 70s unfold? So like Led Zeppelin 2 has just come out, Loretta's 40. (laughs) 
She's I, missed that whole thing. I'm picturing her uh, like we're just rocking that on the bus. Uh, so, like I said, born in 32, seven siblings, the youngest of whom we also know for her singing voice. You know who her youngest sister is? No. Crystal Gale. That's her young... Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, my god. That's her baby. That's her baby sis. Born, so they're born in Butcher Holler... Butcher Hollow, Kentucky, which is not a real place. So I cannot believe I forgot about that. <laughs> she was at my first concert, Brian. I know you've <laughs> told that story before. That's why I'm like, I, I can't believe you whiffed on that. Oh my gosh! Don't it make my brown eyes blue? Man, that song is amazing. Okay, okay sorry. So they're born in Butcher Hollow. Butcher Hollow is not really a real place. They also call it if you hear her talk about Butcher Holler. It's like a street. Okay, it's not. It's not a township. It's actually part of Van Leer. Van Leer, Kentucky. That does still <laughs> exist. And and even Van Leer was just constructed at for mining business. That's literally why that town was built. So she's married in 1948, actually moves to Washington State that early. So all her Kentucky roots are before 1950. So let that sink in for a minute. Somebody who everyone thinks of is from Kentucky. She hasn't hadn't lived in Kentucky in 70 plus years. She hasn't been to a basketball game here. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. the, the Louisville Colonels were still playing back then. Um, okay. So her husband buys her guitar in 1953, the year my, my parents were born. Uh, and within three years or so, she's built herself a band. Uh, do you know this little factoid about the talent contest? She wins. No. She, no, no. she wins it. this. She in, in Washington, she wins this talent contest. She wins a wristwatch. For, the, for playing in this talent contest. And the, the, the talent contest was hosted by Buck Owens. Oh, get the hell out of here, yeah, Buck. Yeah, yeah, Bakersfield, kick-ass yeah, yeah. king. That's k- totally kick-ass. It sucks that she got a retirement gift for her, <laughs> for her talent show. A dude chose that. <laughs> so true. A Can- him a watch. A Canadian guy sees her perform and is so impressed that he starts a damn record label. Uh, her first recording happens in 1960, and the song is called I'm a Honky Tonk Girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My cousin Grace, who must be 22 or 23, sent me a picture of that record. And when she was in high school, she played it all the time at one point to where her parents were like, Why are, stop playing? What this is song? wrong with you? <laughs> please, and, please play something released and, in the last. But like you hear that, it's like uh, it's like it's that thing where you can't explain where it just comes from that rock and roll other dimension. Right. And and the lore around her starts right here. Like that's sort of what you're describing. Right. So this is where the story goes that they get this record and do her husband mails out a bunch of copies of this song and does not hear anything back. So he tells her they're loading up and they're going to start driving to radio stations. Well, yeah, here's a quote from Loretta. We were pitiful because we were too poor to stay in hotels. So we slept in the car, ate bologna and cheese sandwiches in parks. And then we'd go into the radio station and pester the DJ to play my record. We didn't care if it was a 500 watt local station or a 50,000 watt station. We'd hit them all. We were on the road for three months. Oh, man. And that works. What one of the things that makes her story unique, especially when you look at Nashville now is that in these early days, this young, I mean, almost girl, young woman, I mean, she's got kids and stuff at this point, but she's not 20, maybe 20. She's writing these songs. So not only is she got this unique voice and this unique story, she's actually pinning what she's singing. Now, this is going to change, and this is an right. important part of the story. And yeah. so that means that even though they won't actually play into this story directly, we got to talk about a couple of dudes. I'm sorry to take the spotlight off of this beautiful woman, we got to talk about the Wilburn brothers for a moment. I feel like these dudes have kind of gotten lost to history. Do you, do you know much about them? I don't know much about them at all, no. Roy Acuff discovers them when they're literal children. They're like 7 yeah. and 10 in the mid-30s. Oh. oh, man. He puts them on That's the Grand Old Opry. This is true. He puts Acuff puts them on the Grand Old Opry. It has to stop using them due to child labor laws. Oh, my gosh. That's so weird. That makes me feel even weirder about Roy Acuff, but keep going. <laughs> They'll go, enough. they'll go on to the Louisiana Hayride. They'll eventually have their own show in the 60s. This was like a big deal in the 60s, and I I didn't really know about it, the, the Wilburn Brothers. Loretta becomes part of that show, and she'll basically make a name for herself alongside these two guys. Fun Wilburn Brothers sliding doors moment. 
We talked recently about Rick James's decisions changing musical history. Listen to this one. These, oh my God! What is happening now, Brian? What is happening? We just mentioned Rick James. <laughs> Rick James showed Lynn. up with the Wilburn brothers and Loretta Lynn. No, that did not happen. But I want to talk. The, That's what happens. He walks in the room, all black leather. He goes, "I want to talk." He's on the other end of the phone instead of Conway. So these these guys, the Wilburn brothers, have these. I don't know. It's the label or the songwriter. These people come to them and they're like, we got this song. It's 1956. We got this song. We think the Wilburn brothers should record 56. Jeez. And they play got them it. heartbreak hotel. And these two guys are like, that sucks. That's we're passing. We are passing on that song. Please don't come around here with that business. That's Hey, Elvis sold that song, man. Yeah. That is yeah. definitely like yeah. one of my least favorite Elvis songs for sure. But there was a reason that that song was a single. Like, yeah, ah, that that made an impact. Yeah, you're right. Like, it would not sound right if anyone but Elvis was singing it. it it's kind of quintessential early Elvis sound, and yeah. he he sort of made it something. But it's a it's a it's a slow number. That's the thing that's different about Heartbreak Hotel. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You know, it's like the whole thing is slowed down. You know. But I can I can imagine why someone would be like, ah, that sucks. So the Wilburn brothers didn't like that, but they do like Loretta. They take her on the road, they put her on the show, and with this help, and, and what really becomes sort of a partnership between the three of them, in the 60s, she becomes huge. In 67, she has her first single. That's Don't Come Home Drinking With Lovin' On Your Mind, inspired, of course, by Do. Uh, and that breaks the dam. 68, 69, you talked about how all the songs sort of sounded the same, and they were clearly like on a, on a mold. Like, yeah. she's very prolific, in this period yeah. of years, 68, 69, 70, keeps popping top 10 singles and number one songs. And that all sets the stage for her to release the song Coal Miner's Daughter, which happens in 1970. And that's significant for how big of a song it is and how it will associate her specifically with a way of life. Yeah, which to me, I wish that wasn't her hit because like you ain't woman enough to take my man should be for me that I wish that was the Loretta. I mean, like, she, that song I, did pretty I, well. That song did pretty well. Don't undersell that song. I, I know, but like I, as a kid, like I guess I think about it now. She was such an, an, an elder within the industry yeah. that they'd be like, ladies and gentlemen, Loretta Lent. And it, it was like I, when I would see Carl Perkins as a kid and he would just come out and play Blue Sweet Shoes and Loretta would come out and sing Coal Miner's Daughter and she was dressed up like she was going to a right. wedding. Right, right, right. Like, and so I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't get to. It took her that. vitality. You didn't understand her importance. Nah, I just thought she was like a you know, an older person that had right. like this really big hit. Or, or that yeah. Or that the other songs were funny and dark and edgy and banned in some cases. You know, like you miss yeah. all of that with Coal Miner's Daughter. The Wilbur Brothers yeah. do. They do tons of good stuff for Loretta. But on the verge of these number one singles in '67. She formalizes a part of this partnership with them that does a lot of good for the brothers and not her. Huh. They they become her publishers. Ah, okay. So they take the publishing. And unless, yeah, unless this is the first time you've ever heard an episode of this show, you know what that means. Uh, there seems to not have been a lot of publishing deals in the 60s that didn't leave the artist in terrible shape. And, and that's what happens to her. This will end up not just losing Loretta money and raising her stress level. It will actually cause her to stop writing music she wow. will stop writing music for nearly 30 plus years <gasps> that's right and so she stopped she, she stopped writing and did she do it based on the business deal and yeah. trying to, to 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 give them the finger and yeah. being like you're not getting any of the publishing money mm-hmm and wow. that's the real tragedy in all this, right? She gets tied up in a lawsuit with him, won't really write songs again until the second one dies, which is in 2003. There's a lawsuit then where she's suing the estate to get rights back, and that's when Van Leer Rose, the record she does with Jack White, happens. And that's one of the reasons that record's so special, because she writes most of that record. Ah! It's such a great cake, cake kiss I know, right? of a career. Oh. And now, we, yeah. we don't have to get into any more nitty-gritty on the Wilburn Brothers if you have those details, but you need to know for context that what we are about to embark on, this legal battle is running in the background. Um, she says, while describing this story in Coal Miner's Daughter, that she was exhausted because she was in the middle of all this stuff with the Wilburn brothers in court. 
at the same time. So it's important to know that that is happening. Um, and there's a complicating factor number two that's happening at the same time, or at least another piece of context that you need about this story and the time period it takes place in. And to grasp that, we got to talk about coal mining. That is not something we've talked about on this show before at all. No. What a left turn. Okay. Yeah, we don't have to go super deep. All puns intended. Just know that coal mining... <laughs> Coal mining's been around forever, and it's incredibly dangerous, which obviously you know, uh, both in the short term and in the long term, right? You can get hurt the day you enter a coal mine, or you can get you can get very hurt 30 years later when you have the black lung. So yeah. in the 1890s, the coal industry starts to gain political and social weight. There's unions trying to get some rights for the guys that are risking so much in these jobs. But in the late 60s and the early 70s in the U.S., that's when we start to see all of this is turning also into an environmental issue. Okay? So it's been right. a social issue. Now it's becoming an environmental issue. That's when it starts. And, and I wonder now, thinking about the the year that it came out, like, I wonder, like, the first people that know, the only thing they know about coal mining is Derek Zoolander going and seeing his dad, John Voigt, in a coal <laughs> mining thing, because they know nothing about coal mining. I got the black lung, Bob. <laughs> Merman, merman. <laughs> okay. Well, if those people, I hope this helps. This is what you should know: the Federal Coal Mine Health and Safety Act. It comes out in 1969. One actual decent thing that Richard Nixon did, uh, generally referred to as the Coal Act. Now, this at the time is the most comprehensive and stringent federal legislation governing the mining industry up to that point in history. Here's some key components of the Coal Act. Four annual inspections required at all underground coal mines. Two annual inspections required at all surface coal mines. Mandatory fines for all violations. Criminal penalties for knowing and willful violations. Safety standards for all coal miners strengthened. And health standards adopted. Now, this all sort of sounds like garbage, but this becomes noteworthy for our purposes today because this passes into law on December 30th, 1969. Okay. And exactly... One year to the day later, December 30th, 1970, 1210 in the afternoon, the Hurricane Creek Mine in Hyden, Kentucky explodes. The show is brought to you in part today by Our Brains Hurt. If there is one thing that Murdoch and I love, it's punk rock. You've heard us talk about it a lot recently on the show. And if you need a little more punk rock in your life, if you need another podcast to add to your listening list, uh, check out Our Brains Hurt. Ron and Matt, both dudes from the Washington, D.C. area, they started this podcast during the COVID shutdowns because they wanted to give local punk bands an outlet to continue to put things out. So they've been at it now for a couple of years, and they have had some badass guests. How about uh, Ben Weasel, Joe Queer, Richie Ramone, Guar's Sleazy P. Martini. <laughs> and that's not even to mention all the other badasses from the local scene, etc. Our Brains Hurt is your very own punk rock audio green room. Each week, Ron and Matt sitting down with a new guest, chatting about shows, talking about tours, discovering records, whatever else comes up. And you can find it anywhere that you get your favorite podcasts. Or you can head over to their website. That's Our Brains Hurt. O-U-R Brains Hurt dot com. The Courier Journal in Louisville ran a retrospective on the Hyden Mine explosion when it hit 50 years in 2020. I'm going to read a bit from it. The 2400 Deep Mine had been opened the preceding March by coal operators Charles and Stanley Finley. New. It was a new coal mine. Okay. It was a place of deafening noise, tractors, and coal belts taking advantage of rising coal demand. Workers blasted coal, loaded it onto trailers, and drilled bolts into the rock ceilings for stability, earning $24 a day, more than twice the county's average income at the time when most adults didn't get past the sixth grade. The narrow seam of coal common in the area meant that it was like working under a desk all day. If things went bad, you could not run out. You'd have to crawl. Inside the mine that day, miners were blasting a boom hole, quote-unquote, to make room in a ceiling to load coal onto a belt. Some had suspected that illegal dynamite and primer cord, which is an illegal fuse, had been used in the mine. Around noon, a great blast echoed on the hillsides, and one miner, A.T. Collins, had left the mine briefly, was headed back in, and was blown 60 feet in the air. 
Oh my gosh. He was alive oh. and lived to tell about it. The rest went unaccounted for. Now, Ugh. there's an amazing thing I found in the show notes. Depending on your interests, you may know this name. The name is George Vexy. He goes on to be known as a sports writer, mostly a baseball guy. He writes for the Times. In 1970, he's he's just gotten sent to, to cover stuff from Louisville. So they, they move him and his family from New York to Louisville, Kentucky. And the editors call him and say, actually, we need you to start covering Appalachia since you're close-ish. Wow. That's about, for those that don't know, that's about three hours from Louisville. So he goes down to do a site visit on December 30th, 1970. Gosh, that is crazy. He calls to check in with his editors before he leaves, and they tell him to drive an hour over and check in on this little town in those parts where a mine had just exploded. Now, here's, here's what I found. I said I found something cool in the show notes. George Vexy is in his 80s now, but he has a blog on a Weebly site. <laughs> like, you know, the, no way. the yeah. free hosting platform. GeorgeVexy.com. And on the 50th anniversary of this, he also posted a reflection piece from his firsthand experience of being there that day. And of all the stuff I read in the research, it is one of the most effective things I've read about any of this. I highly recommend taking the time to go check this out because you don't get his reflections only. He links to a lot of his original reporting. You can see photos of the people that were with him. It's all emotional. It's, it's, it's beautiful stuff, and I'm glad he put it up. But somewhat coincidentally, this is crazy, George Vexy will end up being the guy who writes Coal Miner's Daughter with Loretta Lynn. That is crazy what happened here. I wasn't expecting that turn so out. So if, if you've read the book, she will often mention my writer. And as he says, she she pronounced it my writer. He, he like writes it out, M-A-H-W something. Um, she talks about him in the book as my writer. My writer dug up this story. My writer did this. Me and my writer did this. She refers to him as a, almost as a character. Yeah. And she's talking about him. And the, the way it comes about is uh, he is actually back in Appalachia after everything has gone down with the hide mine and after what we're going to talk about happens. And someone mentions it to him that Loretta Lynn had been involved in this thing related to the hide mines. And he makes a note about that and then like somehow makes her acquaintance. And it's a little unclear, but eventually makes her acquaintance. And, and here he is just this newspaper writer who gets this gig hanging out with her and compiling and helping write this amazing and honestly, one probably one of the greatest musical memoirs ever written. It's just, it's phenomenal if you've, if you've never read it. But here's the deal about this guy. He also, after her passing, the New York Times has called him and asked him to reflect on his relationship with her. So he did like an obit of sorts for her that's also in the show notes that they just published like last week. Brian, thanks for bringing the heat uh, for all this amazing Loretta stuff. Yeah. So if you want to have both ends of it, you can go read about George Vexy covering this incident, and then you can go read about him and his relationship with Loretta from just... Very recently. So, very, very interesting guy. And, I mean, he's written tons of stuff. Do a little research on him. He's, he's fascinating. But to wrap up the aftermath of this explosion, uh, I, said, I said the mine explodes. Now, let me read from Clio. I don't know if you know what Clio is. C-L-I-O. It's this app that's designed to give you virtual tours of historical sites. And you can access it online. It's really crazy. But you can look up the Hyden Mines. And so, it has all this historical information so that you could sort of, if you were to be there, you could learn about it in real time. This is how they describe what happens. As the cold winter day goes on, victims were slowly pulled out of the mine and taken by ambulance to the local school's gymnasium where their loved ones had to come identify their bodies. Some of the men had been so badly shattered by the coal dust explosion that the only way to identify them was by their social security number worn on the back of their belts. The ages oh of the gosh. miners ranged from 18 to 60. The disaster was one of the most deadly mining disasters in American history and the worst in eastern Kentucky. Do you have an estimate of how many people died in that? Yeah, 38. I know wow. exactly. Because there was only 39 miners, and the one guy got blown out, so 38 died. Now, what will go on to be figured out in all of this is that the reason it happens is that this mine was not following any of the requirements laid out in the 1969 legislation that passed exactly a year before. They'd ignored all of it. 
Back to this Cleo piece. There was, quote, nearly absolute failure in enacting the law. In response to the mining disaster, the second one in three years, um, the U.S. Bureau of Mines director, Albert Osborne, callously remarked, this disaster was not unexpected. We've had two good years since Farmington, which was a crazy thing that happened in West Virginia, where 78 miners were killed. And I think we can expect one of these mm, almost every year. Like, he literally just says that after this happens. After Hurricane Creek, no new mine safety regulation was passed at the state or federal level. Even the owner, Charles Finley, remember how I told you that that legislation in 69, one of the things it was supposed to do was hold people criminally responsible if the rules weren't followed? Yeah. He will go on trial for negligent operation, but not end up taking any penalty. It takes until 77 for more regulations to come into play and for mine-related deaths to actually start to go down. It takes until 77. There's too much money in it. There's too much money in it. Yeah. And we, I mean, it's dangerous. (laughs) All right, super scary stuff, but high reward. I mean, I said $24 a day earlier, and you're probably like, oh my God, that's terrible. But it roughly... In 1970, that's like... It's, it's like fourteen hundred dollars or something a week, yeah. Whatever it was, it's a lot. It's a lot more than twenty four. So here's the deal: in the U.S. Bureau of Mines might not care about Hayden. Charles Finley, whose negligence caused thirty eight people to die, might not care much about Hayden or take responsibility. But Loretta Lynn is watching these events unfold on TV, and she is pretty upset. In Coal Miner's Daughter, she talks about how often she found herself hearing sob stories and desperate pleas for money once she found success. And this is very hard for her to figure out how to manage. She's open about this because she came from nothing and she wants to help everyone. And obviously, she cannot do this, right? So she will use do. Her husband is sort of a front to help her say no. Um, but this particular instance that we're about to talk about teaches her a lot about the harsh realities of trying to help people in a very complicated and very complex emotional and traumatic situation. Mm. When she hears about the mine explosion, she's devastated. And it hits close to home for several reasons. One, because it literally hits close to home. Hyden, Kentucky is uh, about 70 miles from Van Leer. So, you know, that's close enough for someone with roots in the area who has a little bit of a bleeding heart to begin to feel personally responsible. Number two it hits emotionally close to home because it was the same type. Like I learned this in the research. There's lots of different types of mines, and this is actually the same type, which basically means it goes straight into a mountain. Um, and she describes seeing news footage of a devastated young mother in her early twenties after this with three small kids at her feet. And she says she just can't stop picturing that as her own mother who had all those kids. Cause she's one of eight siblings. Yeah. And, uh, she knows that her mom lived in fear of her dad dying in the mines every single day when he left for work. And so she feels this real empathy, right? And the more she hears about the story, the more she starts to realize how unprecedented um, this is and how unprepared this town is. Because this town is like the one that she came from. And she knows they're super unequipped to deal with the aftermath of all this. First off, these 38 men leave 101 kids behind. Oh my gosh. Wow. And second, it takes no time for the insurance companies and the government people to get all over this town, right? Because there's a lot of paperwork being waved in a lot of faces without a lot of lawyers present. These companies have a lot to lose. So they're down there getting widows to sign off on things. Gosh. You know, trying to get them to basically relinquish the responsibility from the guilty parties because these people don't know better and they don't have any resources to do better. So Loretta decides she needs to help. So step one, she decides to go to Hyden. So she visits the widow, she visits the graves, she visits the mines. And once she's seen that firsthand and meets people, now she's even more invested. She was already very invested from watching this on TV, right? Now she's seen it up close. She decides she's got to do something to get them money. And what she wants to do is raise a bunch of money so these kids can have a future. And her idea is, we'll raise a bunch of money, and we'll put it in a trust fund. And when all these kids turn 18 or whatever, they can they basically get to go to school for free. So that's going to be the idea of what we're going to raise money for. So she, I mean, if you're Loretta Lynn, 
and it's 1970, and you just had coal miner's daughter happen, and a coal mine explodes, right? It's very on brand, yeah, right? Right. And she's it's like, all it's very easy for her to call other country musicians. She's going to throw a benefit concert. Now, I said earlier that this, the, the other side of this story has, is, has not hung on in history, but the benefit concert itself is mentioned in a lot of her obits. Most things I've read about the aftermath of her death make mention of it. Uh, this is one from a reflection piece in the Louisville Courier. In 1971, Lynn organized a large benefit concert with 50 other country music artists who performed at Louisville's Freedom Hall. The concert was held to raise funds for the widows and children of 38 miners who were killed in an expansion, I'm sorry, in an explosion, obviously, at a coal mine near Hyden, Kentucky. Wow, 50. Now, it's a couple of sentences that sound good in the narrative of her life, but when she writes her first memoir five years after this happens, Loretta has way more details and irritations to express. Here's what she says. Sometimes it seems that when I try to do good, the more problems I have. I got in more trouble than you can imagine over that coal mining explosion in Hyden, Kentucky. There are still people down there who accuse me of lying, stealing, and cheating. When the truth is, I just put myself in the hospital because I wore myself down trying to make money so they could send their kids to college to let them be somebody and stay away from the mines. But it didn't Gosh. work out too good. You, wow. uh, you, ever, you ever done a show on Freedom Hall? Uh, I've seen a basketball game. Coincidentally, I have one, two. I've done two shows. I, I promoted two shows, two country shows in Freedom Hall. How about that? No way. Oh, wait. I saw Hart there. Ah, oh, right on. Yeah, no, we did uh, We did a Gary Allen show um, with a bunch of openers one year, and then we did a Justin Moore, Thomas Rhett show at Freedom Hall. They don't use it a lot anymore, but it's still there. And so this was, uh, I don't know, what was that, eight years ago? And we were able to uh, use the venue to, to do shows. It was a lot cheaper than the, the premier venues that most people come to now. So that's what we did. Yeah, with the eighteen dollar vodkas or whatever. Yeah, I saw a basketball game in Freedom Hall when I right after I moved here, like eighteen years ago, and my friend and his dad had season tickets, and they were in folding chairs. And I'm like, "What kind of garbage is this?" And like, they're super expensive because they were, we were like the third right row. on the floor. Yeah, yeah, we're right on. And I'm like, we're in, we're in folding chairs, <laughs> um, and then, and then the best part about that experience being at Freedom Hall, and I'd never been there. And I remember thinking someone had said something about they have delicious beer. And I was like, this is Coors Light and Bud Light. But that beer was really cold. I've talked about that before. But what I didn't know is that my buddy really was intense about being a basketball fan. And he would <laughs> yell at the referees. He would, he would call them zebras. And he knew their names. Oh, no. It's like when you go like, see a comedy it, show. You go, you go see a comedy show with somebody not knowing they're the heckler. And you're like, oh, no. What has yeah. happened? By the way, this is totally, totally off topic. So this is going for the core audience. But real quickly, talking about hecklers and people from Kentucky. Have you seen this video that went viral from that? It's a comic who claims Kentucky, but she's not someone that we know as much as we know this comedy scene. I've um, seen it. Her name's Ariel. And she, so she was in New Jersey and someone starts getting political with her and like not liking her political opinions. And so she's trying to like move on. They're like heckling her. And she's trying to move through it, and a beer comes flying through the audience by her head and smacks the back wall right behind her. And the entire club freaks out, because it's a very violent thing to have happen. And she yeah. also, you could see this video, because she had video running in the back to watch her, so it's her video. She was able to release it. And you can see her first go, oh my God, what just happened on her face? And then she does that for like, a second and a half, and then she slowly and coolly turns to the back wall, picks up that beer while people are yelling and freaking out. Picks up that beer and sh just, just throws it back. Just oh, there was hugs there was that still beer. beer. There was still oh, beer left. Yeah, yeah, it was still had beer glass. in it. No, it's like a plastic. It was a cup. can. It was a can. It was a can. Oh, uh -huh. so there's no. It didn't all get out of it. They just yeah. threw a can of beer and it smacked the back wall. And she picked it up, popped it, and then just downed it. And like, it's amazing. It's an amazing video. 
<laughs> I wish she had taken the beer and thrown it at that prick. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, we get we since we're talking, so we're a little off subject, and we're talking about venues and artists and performances and our, our background in entertainment and radio and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I think we can stop down for a minute and talk about our experiences with charity shows or benefit concerts. When I heard first heard this story from Loretta, I had this bit of a visceral reaction because. I have never had something of this magnitude happen, but I do know from working alongside nonprofits for a long time and working in the entertainment industry just how thankless something like this can be. This like embarking on a big event uh, or opportunity to try to raise money for people. Yeah, uh, it, it's it can be thankless for sure, um, but you know you just hope that it's worthwhile. It works out. <laughs> do you know? Do you know my story about the? I feels like I've told this before, especially since we've talked about Brett Michaels so much on the show, but the Brett Michaels contest winners. Have I told this story? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, I mean, it's a great example, right? Like they, they get this opportunity to hang out with Brett Michaels and he says something offhandedly about, yeah, man, you know, anytime you want to come backstage or whatever. And they like call me the next day demanding like Brett Michaels phone number. And I'm like, no, that's not how this works. (laughs) He was just being nice, but there's a little bit of that, right? There's a little bit of this entitlement that starts to happen. There's a little bit of just wires getting crossed and people seeing an opportunity to do some business and maybe attach their name to something. And it just, it gets messy. I had to dig in. I told you it was hard to find anything about this show, but I did find an archived billboard magazine that contains a short article about the aftermath of this show. It was published in, in 1971. Aftermath. Oh, I'm excited. This is getting weird. So, okay. well, and this is what this is funny though because this is what hits the press. The, the, everything that hits the press is very clean. Country show raises 1.5 million for mind tragedy orphans. 1.5 million in '71. By the way, is about 10 million today. Okay. Uh, about 1.5 million has been raised by country music artists in the benefit aimed at helping orphans of a Kentucky coal mining disaster. The Mammoth Country Show designed to provide for the needs of 104 children was held at the 18,000 seat Freedom Hall. That's inaccurate. Planned and led by DECA's Loretta Lynn. Uh, the money was raised by pledge, donations, audience, collections, payment by radio and television stations, which carried the event on a huge network. Contributions of individuals and organizations. Two-year college scholarships were also given to each of the children with additional funding available to continue future education. I don't think any of that is true, according to Loretta. Uh, the gated, wow. and, and then Billboard gives this, this stat. The gate itself yielded $70,000, and the sale of records inside the hall resulted in several thousand more. Here's the fun part, though. Are you ready for this? They, they, yeah, then, okay. they then list the bill. You ready for the bill? Yeah. The bill included Conway Twitty, Charlie Leuven, the Osborne Brothers, the Wilburn Brothers, Roy Acuff, Bill Monroe, Del Reeves, Tom T. Hall, Sonny Wright, George Morgan, Billy Grammer, Billy Ed, Wheeler, George Hamilton IV, Skeeter Davis, Connie Smith, Grandpa Jones, Jim and Jesse, Ray Pillow, Wendy Bagwell. Do you know any of these people? Oh, yeah, sure. Tom Paul I mean, and the Glazer is, Brothers. Is, it's old school. Carl sure. Smith, Tex Ritter, Lonzo and Oscar, Pee Wee King. Tex Ritter. Red Stewart, Peggy Sue, Crystal Gale, Little Sis shows up. Jay Lee Webb. Uh, and then there's this paragraph at the bottom that says, Governor Lewis Nunn, governor of Kentucky, provided the auditorium at a reduced charge, that comes back in the story, gave transportation to the youngsters from the Hyden, Kentucky disaster, and was instrumental in obtaining the sponsors, or the scholarships. What? Why is the governor getting just like a vague write-up? in this about how great he is. Did he write that piece? I mean, according to Loretta, this is a this is a real fluff piece if you compare it with what she says happened to this benefit concert. The benefit does take place at March 1st, on March 1st, 1971. She has a lot of different numbers than that billboard piece. She says capacity okay. at Freedom Hall was 15K, not 18, which is... It's 15. Which is right. She says they got 40 performers, not 50, um, which, and I don't think they say 50 in that article, but a lot of things did. Uh, she went around the month of February that year. So this happens in March. She spends the month before promoting the benefit all over the country. And to her, when she does this, it's it's about, she's got an agenda. And it's about the disadvantaged people in Appalachia, right? She's less concerned. I mean, she's concerned about the mines. But this is a this is a bigger thing for her. She is Her eyes have been opened to how some people live. And she's reminded of how she lived when she was young. And... But the problem is she's trying to get these New York and Hollywood people to understand the life of a minor, but they just think her voice is funny and want to hear hillbilly stories. 
She uh. claims the promo of this cost her 10k out of her own pocket, which again, mm-hmm. probably like $75,000 in 2022. Gosh. Night of the show arrives and these families do indeed get bust. I did not read that Lewis Nunn personally lined the buses up or whatever, but uh I did it is I have read it several places including Loretta that Colonel Sanders himself, the actual guy, shows up and serves chicken. Uh, which I don't know. That's just funny to me that he's running around. Uh, Loretta will write this quote. The show wasn't organized as well as it should have been because of Doyle Wilburn not being in good shape. Now that's one of the Wilburn brothers. That's a little out of context and I don't understand exactly what she means by that. Not a lot of detail, but the trouble starts with where they seat these women from Haydn. Now, Oh man, I know the knowing look, right? You and I both spent a lot of time in concerts and entertainment and could tell a lot of stories about good seats at concerts, quote unquote, good seats, what people want, what people expect, what people ultimately tend to get. And what people think that are good seats that aren't good seats. And then people that gets totally screwed with crappy seats that they win. Have I ever told the story on the show from when we worked in radio and there was that one morning show personality who had like, slightly higher celeb status than the rest of the team. And he would sit while his boss was like trying to talk to him about the actual show he was producing. And then he would like be on his phone and text like, Hey, can you give me good seats to Jason Aldean? And like his boss's phone would ring on the desk with a text from him that he had just sent from two feet away when he's oh supposed God, to be listening to him. You know who I'm talking about too, right? I actually don't. It's good. <laughs> good. It's good that I don't. And I feel great about it. He's got a suntan. Just, That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Right. Uh, so, uh, that guy in particular, he would come to me too, asking for tickets, right? If his boss wouldn't hook him up and he would always tell me he needed good seats, but he like, couldn't really specify what that meant. And I couldn't really guarantee any certain placement. And, I think there's a similar thing happening here with the Hyden Widows, right? They're supposed to be the guests of honor. And I, I sort of get it with the Hyden Widows, because they are supposed to be the guests of honor. They're they're supposed to be the recipient, them and their children, of a, a large amount of money for this concert that's happening at Arena. Uh-huh. So and, uh, I can imagine how proud they're trying to be and how they've had... a to go through a lot of shit. I mean, there's a lot of them, so it would be hard to like put them on stage, but somehow something gets screwed up and they're like not in a good spot. And it's unclear as to exactly where they are. I think they're sort of like out of out of a sight line or sort of way off to the side or something. Anyway, apparently it's so bad that they threaten to leave. Now, you can hear in this Billboard article this breakdown that gets released detailing where all that money comes from. They're taking donations. They're taking calls. I guess during the show, maybe they're doing a telephone thing because it's actually, they, they do have a broadcast on, I think, 40 radio stations is the number. And so the next BS thing that happens is that they're taking these calls during the show. And this guy from Georgia calls. And he's like, I own a steel mill or something. He like, tells a story about that he's successful. And he, and he says, I'm going to donate a million dollars. Now, Pro tip, if you're running a benefit like this and someone pledges a huge number, you and I know this, you do some due diligence. You <laughs> you verify it before you tell anyone that it's happened. You don't do that live on the air, right? Now, things are in such chaos at this oh, thing, or, or there's just such inexperience involved, that they go to the microphone and they're like, we just had a man donate a million dollars! Uh, yeah, it turned, never happened. Yeah, that was a prank. That was a prank. But try to explain that to a bunch of widows who are already pissed off that you put them in the nosebleed section. Not good. Yeah, they're not going to think that, uh, you know, guys from the Howard Stern show are calling into <laughs> and, a radio, 40 radio station. Right. And I do think that this was out of the league of the people putting it on. It sounds to me, when I when I hear Loretta tell this story, like artists and managers are trying to be promoters without realizing that that's a very different job. I spend a lot of time with a couple of promoters that are friends of mine and I hear crazy horror stories all the time. And I understand the intricacies of how hard that job is and what that job is. But if you're around that industry and you don't spend a lot of time with promoters, if a promoter is doing their job correctly, it's invisible. 
So right, it's right. It just works. It just works. So you don't understand how hard it is until you try to do it. And that's that's a lot of what this whole situation reads to me is that these are people who were trying to do something because they thought they could pull it off real quickly, and they had a lot of good intentions. Didn't go so well. The next thing that sends them sideways is that they think that they're getting Freedom Hall for free. Who's they? Whoever's putting on the show. Loretta and oh. her people. Oh, they think it's free. They think it's free. Like, to use the venue. Let me tell you, no venue's free. No. And definitely not here in Kentucky. There's a board, and it's all political. And yeah, weird. and that's, you know, it's interesting. I didn't go look. They, there is a lot of interesting history on that venue in general, because it was operated by the State Fair Board for a long time. You bring up a great point that I did not look into. I'm now really curious to go back and see if the State Fair Board operated at the time, because that would explain a lot of the, the politics behind this, and they probably did, and that's probably why there was not a massive reduction in cost. Now, I think there was a reduction in cost. I don't know how big or how much they were asked to pay for it, but they basically hadn't planned to pay for it. And now, as the money comes in, they have all these costs associated with this concert. And this is what happens. People always think the way to raise money is an event. Events are expensive. Uh, they're, and, they're, and they're the worst sometimes. They're so hard to pull off correctly. Like I said, it's like a promoter. If, if it works correctly, no, no one gets any praise, right? If it goes wrong... Crucifying somebody that's in that job. And so they start getting bills. So in the aftermath of all this, they get the bill from Freedom Hall, and then they start getting bills from people who thought who they thought were volunteering. So there was like like all these people who had been calling and promoting and coordinating, and, and they're they're getting these itemized phone calls, like from people like I called this guy, so X amount of money. I called this guy X amount of money. And the expenses just get out of control. Wow, so that's so like devastating. I, it's awful, and it's embarrassing if you're Loretta Lynn, right? And she's embarrassed yeah, yeah. by this. They, they they pay off everything and everyone, and they count up what they have left. They've got $91,000 left. Now, that seems a little low considering the numbers we were talking about, but remember, that would still be significant, especially in 2022 dollars, right? That's still like, right now, that would be like six hundred, almost $700,000. So that would technically pay for 100 kids education yeah it probably takes i mean you I know just, listen college college costs a little more than it used to so that would probably take care of somebody for eastern kentucky community college <laughs> yeah kidding i um, i paid i paid 927 dollars for 12 credit hours like 30 years ago well so grand so loretta so feels it had to be nothing it had to be so it had to be way enough money gosh loretta still feels like they've done a little good at least right she feels okay about this so they tell the accountants, put that in a trust, and we'll deal with it when these kids get a little older, right? Because that's been the whole thing. She sees the poverty these kids are growing up in. She wants them to be able to get out of it. She wants education to be that vehicle. But these hiding widows are desperate and feeling whipped around after the way that concert experience went down. And so it's like a week, and, and they're knocking. Where's our money? Give us our money. Now, Loretta and her people are very insistent. Listen, that was not the deal. This was different from other the other benefits that you've been a part of. This was about education. This is about the future of your kids. And the wives won't have it. They, they are harassing Loretta's office. And then they go to the press saying Loretta Lynn won't turn over the money she raised. It's ugly stuff. So did she even try to put it in a trust? Well, back to my original note that I didn't know why this story has disappeared. You know, I mean, I have been able to pull old news articles from 40 or 50 years ago all the time on this show. I can find all sorts of corroborating evidence of anything. But somehow, all of this is gone, except for Loretta's version. But the story is that in 1972, so, I mean, this is in March of 71, right? So by 72, they're still asking for this money, and so her lawyer just tells her to, to give up. And so each one of the hiding widows gets like two grand. That's like 14K today, so it's not bad. Gosh. Not what, not what it would have been, and according to Loretta, now I don't know why she, how she knows this, because she's writing this only like four years after all of this, but according to Loretta, only one of the 38 use it for education. 
It it's sort of a sad story. Oh, well, it's, it is a sad story. It weirds it, it weirdly rings true to me, having worked in both the concert industry and the nonprofit fundraising world. And, and I think it puts her in a vulnerable light that I find laudable. I think that's why I like this story because when she tells this story, she's very upfront about I want to address head on rumors that people are saying about me in Hyden, Kentucky. She's got this book. She's you know what I'm saying. She's got this all of this history to talk about she in '76, and she's she's now she's elder queen of country music yeah and she she owns it yeah you know it's like way before george jones tried to do something like this like she owns it and then it became a screenplay you know yeah yeah and it's it's just an interesting thing about her i mean there's so much we could be talking about with her there's so many parts of that career and so many different areas, but I just, I like this story because to me, it's like the quintessential Loretta Lynn, right? It's like she gets knocked down, but she gets back up again. And, you know, it doesn't stop her from the benefit concert model. Did you know that last year, at nearly 90 years old, what? She, she was involved in raising $900,000 through a benefit concert for victims of flooding in Tennessee? Get out of here. And that's the beautiful bow that I think you put on top of this story. That she never stopped, man. Loretta never stopped. No. Yeah. Like, literally, all the way to the end. It's beautiful. Uh, one more thing before we wrap all the way. You know, Loretta, not the only country star to get themselves involved in Haydn. You know who else? Do, do you know the... Uh, I mean, we've talked on the show before about uh, our love of Tom T. Hall. But, oh, so he was involved? What well, did he do? He he went down and he wrote a song. It's this. It's called Trip to Hyden. Tossed and turned the night before in some old motel. Subconsciously recalling some old sinful thing I'd done. <laughs> My buddy drove the car and those big coal trucks shook us up. As we drove on into hiding in the early morning sun. They don't write them like that anymore, man. No, 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 no. Um, did you did you see Jack White's tribute to her? Um, I, no, I didn't. I didn't tell me about said, it. Oh, it was. There's a yeah. He put it up on Instagram, so it's it's really, it's probably it's really important for you to watch it. And just watch him talk about it because I don't want to use all of his his words and stuff. Um, but I, I do know that he called her. I, I think it was like the the best singer songwriter of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Put her at the at the top of the echelon of all songwriters. Um, and the thing that I, I won't even get into everything else he said. It's you should really watch it. Um, but the last thing he says in the video is that she was, she was brilliant and she told me things that I'm never going to tell anyone else. <laughs> That's a flex, man. Oh, what a flex. So like, what a, what an amazing thing to it, say. And, and it's yeah. a funny thing to hear about her because she's told a lot of people a lot of things. She's got two memoirs and 90 years where they're running her mouth, but you know, I, I do think just that age, that that depth of experience and that length of life is best illustrated by what you just said. So a tribute to her is given on Instagram. And I'm sure she knew what that was, right? Yeah, sure. Also, she was married a few years after World War II, and she lived through to the COVID-19 pandemic. That's correct. Yeah. That's yeah. a wild life, man, and a wild ride. Yeah. Like she probably saw Match Game, Hollywood Squares, Pyramid, like <laughs> all the game shows. Like the like she must have been at some point. I bet she was sitting around the eighties when she wasn't playing music and she's just watching all those games. All those. <laughs> she's, she's doing it. If you've got a Loretta story, hit us up. We are the Story Guys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear it. Uh, you can also tweet at us. Uh, hey, it's Murdoch on Twitter. That's D O C K and uh, wow, what what Loretta are we going out with? Fist City, we got to go out with Fist City. Fist City, yeah. All yeah. right, hey, keep telling stories. 
You've been making your brags around town That you've been loving my man But the man I love when he picks up trash He puts it in a garbage can And that's what you look like to me And what I see is a pity You better close your face and stay out of my way If you don't want to go to this city When he picks up trash, he puts it in the garbage can. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ah, what a bird. A, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a rough thing to say. 